the science of attraction and the differences between men and women. These are two fields that have become of increasing interest to a lot of people today. Well, I have a special treat for you on episode 10 of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast. I'm speaking to Mary McLeod, PhD of sexyscience.co. Hi, Mary. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yes, I'm doing excellently well, thank you. It's great to have you on the show. So, I'd like to first, before we delve into anything, find out how you ended up going down the road of becoming an evolutionary biologist and a science journalist. Ah, well, that's interesting. Um, Well, I first started out as a biologist. I studied biology at university, first of all. Um, Then I became a monkey keeper and got really interested in the behaviour of monkeys and decided to go back to uni again. Um, I did a master's and then I did my PhD um, studying some mango monkeys in South Africa. So I spent a couple of years trogging around the jungle after these monkeys and, um, you know, working out their reproductive strategies and their mating strategies, you know, how the, how the guys got the girls, basically, and the other way around. Um, so I, I got interested in, you know, behaviour and the evolution of behaviour. Um then I came back to this country and I started um, some reproductive strategies of my own. I started having, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it wasn't really possible then for me to kind of carry on with field work right. and stuff like that. So th- that's when I decided to um, start writing about other people's research, um, and I became a, a freelance science journalist. And so more and more, I was I was kind of first of all writing about animal behaviour. But then more and more kind of got onto sort of more human stuff. Um, you know, obviously we're all interested in why humans behave the way they do, um, especially when it comes to sort of mating and r- romantic stuff and, and sex and everything. Um, so I was writing a lot about that, and that's kind of where it's all all sort of stemmed from my, my work today. So so now I I call myself a, a consultant evolutionary biologist. So I kind of um, as well as writing I run workshops for various people um, and I also do corporate presentations to help you know businesses with with relationship stuff as well so it's all interesting stuff. Yeah yeah and I think you're right everyone seems to be very fascinated and what makes us tech and the science of attraction these days I think has been of more interest than perhaps ever before uh, and in a way I think in the past, most of the stuff about relationships was in women's magazines, but it seems like today men are taking a very ardent interest in it as well. So, yes, uh, you, one of the workshops that you ran was the Science of Attraction and Relationships workshop. What did you find ab- out about the differences between what's generally attractive to women and what's generally attractive to men? Well, um, to be honest, it's, it's not that different um, in many respects. I mean, you know, when you ask men and women to kind of list the, you know, prioritise the, the, the types of, of stuff that's important to them in a partner, almost everybody will put high at, at the top of the list um, things like kindness, nice personality, you know, that sort of stuff. So we're quite similar in that respect. But um, there are some gender differences um, and studies consistently find that men place slightly higher priority on physical attractiveness and women place slightly higher priority on on kind of um you know resource holding potential so kind of you know your career prospects how how financially well off you are um but it really depends on the kind of relationship you're looking for i mean what what people say they want and what they actually choose aren't necessarily the same thing and if you put people into, uh, say, a speed dating situation, as some researchers have done, you know, they've asked them beforehand what they prioritise in a partner and, you know, come up with the, the sort of regular um, gender differences there. Um, but when it actually comes to choosing the kind of people that you, you fancy another date with, um, both men and women both went kind of for, for, for people that they regarded as physically attractive. So, mm. you know the initial thing that people are, are kind of going for um and uh you know it tends to be 
you know, it tends to be important for women if they're if they're going for a long term relationship, if they're you know looking to sort of settle down and have kids, they do want a, a guy generally who is solvent, you know, who's going to be able yeah. to help after the kids, and it kind of makes sense from a biological sure. perspective. Um, and likewise, it makes sense for uh, men to go for physical attractiveness um, because you know that that's an indicator of the woman's fertility. So, men over evolutionary time, if we went for women who you know, had the appearance of being highly fertile, would have left more descendants that would have inherited that um, propensity. But in saying that, there's massive variation in, in what we go for. And for women, um, you know, things are changing in the modern situation. So as women are becoming more financially independent, they're, they're kind of changing what they're looking for. And in fact, um, a colleague of mine, Yona Moore, she did a study a few years back where she showed that women who consider themselves financially independent are more likely to place extra importance on a man's physique um, right. and, and, you know, compared with other women um, and, and, you know, not emphasise the, um, you know, the solvency quite so much uh, because, you know, it's obviously she's got her own money so she doesn't need his so much. In fact, a woman who has her own money is, is kind of more demanding in all respects and, that stands to reason as well. You know, it, it means that she has higher mate value. She has more to right. offer, so she demands more as well. And that that's a general thing with, with preferences as well. The more attractive you are as a partner, the more demanding you tend to be of other people. Right. Um, because, you know, you, you, you can demand more, basically. <laughs> You're, you've, got, you've got sort of a higher value in the mating marketplace. Yes, yeah, so there's a, a sexual economics going on here. Absolutely. And the more that you can get, the, everyone wants all of everything, but most of us are willing to realise that we're unlikely to get all or everything, so we're going to prioritise our values. And uh, traditionally speaking, it was the the old jazz song, your, your daddy's rich and your mum is good looking, but now, <laughs> now that the balance has been... Um, shifted people can think more deeply about what they what they really want out of a relationship or, or what what's most valuable to them in in a potential partner and choose according to that yeah the other thing about mate value is it's very important to try and pick somebody as a partner who has a similar mate value to yourself mm. If that's the case, then you're going to be more satisfied in the relationship. If you go for somebody that's, say, much better looking, much much more attractive as a mate than you are yourself, you're always going to be worried that they're going to be looking elsewhere and they may well you right. know, dump you at some stage when they realise they can actually do better. Um, and they're not going to be satisfied because they're always going to feel that they could do better. So so really, it's it's a good idea if we can try and go for someone that's on our level if we can. Um, but the currencies can be different. You know, you might um, feel that your partner is much better looking than you, but you might be, you know, more successful in your career, you know, whatever. There, there, there are different things that are going to make you attractive. So it doesn't have to be exactly the same, um, but just kind of on the on the same level, because that seems to have an effect on on how, how good a relationship you're going to have. Right, I hear you. And I just want to bring this up because... It's been going around the memes on the internet and it's something that I'd like to get your perspective on which might sound to some a bit controversial and that is the idea that as women get older their mate value might decrease whereas for men it might be the opposite because their earning potential uh, becomes higher. Have you got anything to say about that and how those you know, concerns can be mitigated or dealt with early on? Yeah, well, it's it's absolutely true. Um, from a, a physical point of view, you know, women's attractiveness does drop um, as they get older, especially, you know, um, once they get sort of past the age of reproduction. And, you know, from a biological perspective, that makes sense, you know, because if, if a man is going for a woman who can't have babies, then his, his genes for that preference will not, not carry on in the population. Um yeah, it's a sad state of affairs, really, because what happens is when, when women are young, they have kind of all the balls in their court. Um, it's much harder for guys when, when they're younger. 
Um, and then as guys get older, especially if they have a good career, if they're accruing resources, um, they can become, you know, very attractive prospects indeed for women of any age, never mind, you know, not just older women, but younger women too. So that, that ends up with a, a kind of problem because if, um, older men are attracting younger women, um, and not going for older women, that leaves both older women and young men in a kind of bind. <laughs> It'd be nice if, the two groups together and that's exacerbated at both ends if if the guys if the young guys um don't have a lot of resources they're going to be you know worse off and if and the women at the the, the other end the women who are older they seem to have much more prob they have a much bigger problem if they are high earning and if they're you know the professional right. which kind of seems surprising but actually what seems to happen is women are when they're looking for a partner, they tend to look up the gradient, you know, so they, they go for a guy who is, you know, more highly educated than themselves, higher earning than themselves, even taller than themselves. And that's a problem because if you are, if you are kind of high earning, highly educated, and especially if you're tall as well as a woman, right. uh, it's going to leave you with a very, very small pool of potential boyfriend material. And those guys who are at the top of the pile, they have the pickings from, you know, the whole lot, you know, sure. so, so it's, it's very, very difficult for, um, professional women, especially as they get older. Um, and it's certainly the case that the more edu highly educated and professional a woman is, the less likely she is to have a relationship and to have children. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. so, so we've got two groups of people who are having problems. We've got the young poor men and we've got the, older kind of professional richer women neither of you know neither group of whom can can find mates um so i think what's going to have to happen is a change in attitude and you know for my advice to older women in that situation would be don't lower your standards in terms of the you know going for a good guy for a relationship but you might want to lower your standards in terms of what you're going for in terms of education and solvency because you know, what you might really um, benefit from is a guy who's, you know, willing to take up the domestic responsibility and, and isn't going to be an alpha male and, you know, um, sort of wanting to be the most important all the time. You know, it, it might actually be better to have somebody there who's supportive, who's good at relationships, but who isn't so obsessed with, you know, earning a lot of cash because those kind of guys aren't necessarily great long term relationship material because they have personalities that make them very competitive and that's not necessarily yes. compatible with being a good mate. Um, so it would benefit uh, women in that position to think about the kind of guys they're going for. Um, and I think a, a big problem that women have in that respect is they know the kind of guy they should go for. Yes. They want to go for a nice guy, a guy who's going to be supportive, but they don't fancy right. such a guy. They, they, they fancy the guys that are, you know, dominant bad boy types okay. um but they're the, the wrong the wrong kind of guy because they're not going to they might not be able to to snag such a guy and also um you know it might not make for a good long-term relationship but my feeling is that the, the crux of attractiveness is confidence and what women like in men is confidence and even guys who are nice guys, who are supportive guys, they still probably have their area where they're really confident. And the, the trick is, you know, finding that sweet spot, if you like, uh, and uh, and finding a way of combining, uh, you know, getting a good guy with being sexually attracted to that person. Yeah, so much. I think that's a trick. Yeah, so much in there to, to pick up on. I think attractiveness and fancying people is highest on people's priority list these days and it might not have always been the case because marriage was seen as also an important pragmatic thing in the past when, when we yeah. weren't so let's say privileged in terms of the resources that we had access to and you know Jane Austen's novels for example put um 
uh, thought in there about, yes, it's important to have romance and love and attraction, but it's also important to look at the sensible, pragmatic sides of a marriage and a par partnership as well. But it's very hard to get around yeah. this idea. I mean, I think that when people spend a lot of time together and um, you make love, you go to bed and things like that, even someone that you're less attracted to at first becomes more attracted to you over time and so it's really important to look for good qualities in people because if all you go for is infatuation that really only tends to last I don't know how you, you must be the expert how is it? <laughs> well it varies but yeah two or three years maybe something like that um yeah you need to have other stuff yes. for sure and, and yeah you're you're right I mean you know, in the old days, people got married for practical reasons. And, and then, you know, if love grew from that, then they were lucky. Mm. You know, it, we, we kind of have very, very high expectations of our relationships nowadays. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why a lot of them fail, because we're expecting so much. We're expecting, you know, a best friend, a, a hot lover, a supportive partner, you know, all sorts of different things, as well as, you know, the economic kind of partnership, um, especially if it's raising a family having a house together and stuff. Yeah, big expectations. Um, yeah, I think that does lead to a lot of problems. Yeah, so uh, we, we maybe expect someone to be able to meet all our needs, and especially for people who, who you know, we grow up with the movie romances, and if so, someone's been waiting all their life to find the right person, and then when they meet that person, they're infatuated and everything clicks. And then some, somewhere down the line, you realize that that person can actually fulfill all your needs. And you do need to have a strong sense of self and, and other companions yeah. in order to yeah, meet all your sure. social and relationship needs. One thing I, I meant to mention when you were speaking about the idea that women who have grown in the, their financial capabilities and things like that, and they... I think women do like to admire and look up to their men, or no, I don't think look up to is the right word, but they like to feel like their their man is someone that they can admire, and, and that maybe becomes harder as you become more successful, because you're then looking for someone more successful than you are. Uh, it reminds me of something that I heard Warren Farrell, an expert on gender issues say which is he thought that traditionally both men and women have gone for exactly the kind of partners that are likely to least likely to love them because a woman might go for say a high-powered lawyer or something like that who takes his success from being able to undermine his opponent in the courtroom but if he takes that attitude back home he's not going to make a very good partner or a parent whereas a man would be more likely to go for the the younger better looking girl who might be less experienced and spoilt for choice and therefore um, expecting more and giving less in a relationship and to temper those instincts with 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 our own consciousness and our own being able to bring our own wisdom to the situation to make more conscious decisions. Do you have any views on that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, basically, if, if you go for someone who is highly, highly attractive, you're going to have problems. <laughs> basically. I mean, you know, looking at it from the male perspective, first of all, you know, going for, for, a, for a young, um, gorgeous woman, obviously, all the other guys are going to want to go up with her as well. And so... You know, um, it's like that old song, you know, when you're in love with a beautiful woman. <laughs> right, right, right. That's a great song. Watch out, basically, because, um, you know, there's lots of competition out there. And she'll know that she's got plenty of other, other options. And um, a young, beautiful woman will tend to, she'll be very feminine, she'll tend to be high in the hormone estrogen. And research has shown that women who are high in estrogen are more likely to be kind of dissatisfied with their relationships and more likely to trade up, um, more likely to be unfaithful. So, you know, it is it is a, a risk going for someone that's really good looking. I mean, obviously, you know, that might be something that's really important to you, but you have to remember there are costs as well as benefits. Um, now, looking at it from the female perspective, you were talking about, you know, women going for the, the hotshot executive type or you know someone that's that's um a hotshot lawyer yeah i mean that's that's attractive to women um 
a man who's dominant, assertive, um, because they tend to be they tend to be highly competitive. They tend to be able to bring in the resources. They are competitive against other men, and so from from that point of view, they, they probably have good genes. They're probably of high quality. They're probably intelligent. Um, they're able to protect and resource their their partner and their family. But in order to get to that point, in order to be that competitive, you have to be pretty low in the personality factor agreeableness. Right. Agreeableness is a measure of our kind of concern for others, our, our empathy, if you like. Um, and so basically guys that are doing this, they're not very nice. <laughs> and, right. you know, they might be very, very, you know, sexy and attractive for a short term relationship. But if you're wanting to get married and you know have a long term thing, then you might find that it doesn't work out in the long term because you know guys like that aren't necessarily going to be um, as considerate as, as other people might be. Um, so so it is a tricky one. It's a trade off basically. It's, it's all a trade off about relationships. Um, you know we're trading off. You know, when when we go for for one person and stick with them, we're trading off um, <clears throat> sort of excitement of of having variety against you know the security of having having a a relationship with one person. And um, and if we you know if if we go for um, someone that's nice and caring and stable and faithful, then that's great in one respect. It makes us feel nice and secure, but we might crave excitement from elsewhere. Mm. So it's, it's a, and it really depends on your own priorities. Um, but, you know, as I've said before, you may be able to kind of um, find ways of combining these yes. things if, if you look for the, the sort of confident aspects in your partner and, and kind of see them, see them as other people see them. You know, if, I don't know, if, if you're, if, if your partner is a, a lecturer or a teacher, you know, give, gives talks, you might want to go along and see them talking in front of other people and seeing the admiration mm. that other people have for them, and, and that will make them more attractive to you. Or, or if your partner is a musician or a singer, see them in that context, you know, um, and, and you know, and if you see other people finding them attractive, that's definitely going to make you right. <laughs> you feel more attracted to them as well, because that kind of that increases their their mystique, it increases their mate value as well. It makes makes them appear more valuable to you. Um and and that's what's going to make you feel attracted to them. Right, exactly. Excellent. So it is a difficulty I think for because you've spoken uh, to an extent about how women can consider their their priorities. Now a thing for men, I think facing men is this idea that there's a a lot of shame around a man not feeling like he can attract a mate and say reading a, a book on relationships or something like that or or saying you know I remember when I was in university um, I went as a mature student and I hung around the union and I remember seeing these guys that you know well maybe they were a member of the games club or, or something like that hanging around there and they seemed really depressed and I knew that one of the reasons why was because they couldn't get a girl and mm. but to even admit that to say do you know what I'm if you ask them what was up or anything like that they'd just be like oh nothing or they'd end up on medication because uh, they didn't want to admit why they were depressed but it's, it's biological you know as far as um nature is concerned you've got two primary needs to survive and to reproduce so it's not it's not surprising if people men or women get down because they don't feel like they can have a mate but there's a lot of shame around that as a man because you're basically admitting that you fail as a man i'm not saying that that's that that's true that you you are failing as a man but that's what it feels like for men and yeah. and what I see as a, a, a problem with this is if you don't even admit that you have a problem, then you can't get any help with it. So what is the advice for, for men of which I hear, I mean, I don't know if you can confirm this or not, but I, I heard that there was one study that suggested that the, our genetics suggest that twice as many women have had children 
as men in the history of our species. So if it's something like 80% of women have had children, but maybe 40% of men, men are just getting weeded out the gene pool. Well, I, th- you know, I, think, I think that is true. In fact, I think that um, the discrepancy is, is more than that. Um, historically, we, we've had a, a polygynous situation where, you know, basically there's there's much more variance in men's reproductive success mm. than there is in women's generally um perhaps not not so much in in societies where monogamy is the rule um but you know there are societies obviously still nowadays where um you know men can have many wives but that clearly means that some men don't get any of them um just through the mass if you assume a 50-50 sex ratio um so, so that means, yeah, a lot of guys have to do without, and it's it's true to some extent in our society. I mean, the, the poorest men um, are much more likely to be childless, um, and presumably that is because they don't they, they sort of lack the resources to attract a mate. Um, whereas the richest guys, the guys with the highest income, um, you know, tend to have the biggest family you know, to tend to have greater reproductive success. But but that, that relationship is mainly driven by the fact that the, the poorest men have, have nothing. Um, and, yeah, it's a big problem. And, you know, like I was saying before, we it, it's kind of balanced out by, you know, a lot of women who can't find partners as well, but for different reasons. I think guys have to have to work on their confidence, have to work on... You know, getting out there, getting out of their comfort zones, um, making themselves attractive to women. Um, and, you know, but I suppose you're right in that they have to kind of admit the problem to themselves right. in the first place before they take that step. You know, it might be more comfortable just to sit at home behind a computer the whole time, you know, instead of actually, you know, getting out there and, and you know, making contact and stuff. So it is going to require effort um, and yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be that a man is earning loads of money. You know, he can do well in other ways. Um, you know, find your talents and, uh, you know, do do what you can with those. And obviously men, they always have the, the fallback that if they haven't succeeded by the time they, they, they get older, then the, 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 um, the situation will be better for them if they're going for women of their own age right. as they get older because we a tougher time at that point but yeah it would be nice to think that it doesn't have to be that way you know given that there are enough partners of of either gender to go around if we're talking about heterosexual relationships um it should be possible it's just that we have to position ourselves in the right way we have to be looking for the right thing um i think it's it's going to require a change of attitudes all around really um you know like i was saying women have to be Thinking in terms of looking for different attributes, you know, other than solvency and dominance, because obviously not everybody can be solvent and dominant. Yeah, and I think, at least on paper, everyone would like someone, uh, well, solvent and dominant, but also kind-hearted, warm, uh, good communicator, someone who's got a wide range of interests that we can discuss, someone who's into some of the same things as me so we can talk about them, someone's into things that I'm not into so that they can teach me about those. Like, we'd all like all of everything. So even if it's, uh, I think definitely for men, confidence is one of the big things. And the, the problem is confidence comes from taking risks. And nowadays with all the computer games and the easy access to pornography. It's easy. It's easier than ever to get access to excitement and um, yeah. sexual stimulation without actually having to to make any efforts or take any risks. And so the the confidence muscles atrophy more and more. I mean, as part of my personal development process, I went out and spoke to like a thousand strangers, and it's like the scariest thing ever oh, oh, but what you get out of it what i mean what i what yeah. i i would like recommend it to anyone um what, what i really got out of it was imperturbability it's like when when i was around people and they said things that i wasn't expecting at first i'd react to that and i'd think what am i going to say oh and but just by taking those risks again you're like oh i've seen it all before i don't react and i saw the difference in myself say with a partner or or with other people when they get emotional 
I wouldn't instantly react and become more emotional which would lead into a cycle of an escalation of emotion. No, I'd stay more calm, which means that I could stay present for people better than I could before and help them come down to earth. And everything you gain in life in terms of character comes from taking risks and and, and going a little bit outside your comfort zone. I mean, you talked about the trade-off between having a monogamous partner or the excitement of seeing lots of people for a lot of people being monogamous is outside their comfort zone because you have to go deep with someone you have to reveal yourself and you you need to go deeper into a relationship and develop lots of skills that are necessary to have a harmonious relationship so it's it's not a case of one providing all sorts of novelty and one being bereft of that there's always somewhere deeper to go in a relationship uh, I guess what I really wanted to say was just a pitch for the the meaningfulness of cultivating yourself and how by cultivating yourself and getting out of your comfort zone you also improve your sexual market value, so to speak, not to to, to be crass about it. Yeah, well, it's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree with you about the sort of atrophy of of confidence and you know it's like a muscle you've got to use it if it's going to get strong um we really do need to get out of our comfort zones um you know that there are lots of you know it depends on what you want to do do what you like doing um but take risks with it as well as you say i mean one thing for me is i I used to be absolutely terrified of public speaking um absolutely you know I, I feel like I was having an out-of-body experience that I got up in front of a few people you know um but I really wanted to do it because I wanted to lecture and I wanted to do public speaking so I started off small you know I, I was I, I did some lectures for Edinburgh University open studies and it was normally only about say a, a dozen people and um, so I'd give some lectures there and that that seemed quite challenging to begin with and gradually got easier and and now you know I haven't changed my personality, you know, I wouldn't be able to kind of walk out in front of people and just wing it, you know, I'm always quite well prepared and everything with my presentations, but I, I really enjoy them now, and and it's through practice, it's through seeing that, you know, you don't die as a result of doing That's this, right. it's actually possible, and you you actually get a lot of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting, it's fun to do, and, and you grow that way, and so um, I absolutely agree that you know, in order to kind of develop yourself and, you know, make more things possible and become attractive to, to other people as, as a friend, as a, as a partner, whatever, um, you have to get out there, get out of the comfort zone, absolutely. Right. So in addition to your interest on the science and the biology of attraction, uh, you've been running workshops for women to help them uh, excel or, or reach their potential in the workplace and could you tell us a little bit about what you've learned about that? Yeah well I've basically you know as a as a consultant evolutionary biologist I kind of I run presentations and workshops where I take a, a mainly evolutionary approach to looking at relationships understanding relationships and then using that understanding to help sort of find ways of improving things um, so, you know, there are various topics that, that we, we talk about. Um, some of it is around the way that women compete among themselves. You know, women compete with each other very intensely, um, but people tend not to think about that so much because the way women compete is quite covert. It's not out in the open like in the, in the way that men do. Um, and this is partly because, you know, over evolutionary time, Men tend to sort of form coalitions uh, with each other, large coalitions, you know, and and historically this has been to kind of fight against enemies on the outside, you know, so so men need to operate together to do that. Um, Although they fight among themselves like crazy as well. I mean, obviously men fight, you know, sometimes they kill each other, you know, they they fight a lot um, for for dominance in in their own hierarchy. Um, But the... They also reconcile because they need each other in their coalition. You know, so nowadays, if, even if men aren't at war, that kind of translates into, you know, being in the workplace, fighting together, or um, being in a football team, or you know, there's there's all sorts of contexts where it still happens. Um, 
It's a very different story for women, though. Women haven't kind of been able to benefit through forming large coalitions in the way men do. Um, you know, they don't get kind of more matings, more more reproductive success um, right. through through forming big coalitions to fight against other groups. Um, they have to survive and, and make sure their children survive. And so, women tend to they, they have alliances. They they you know they get together with other women, but they tend to be more likely to have one-to-one friendships, very intense friendships, but less likely to have great big cooperative coalitions in the way that men do. And um, that kind of leads to different ways of being in in the workplace, especially. Um, So, for instance, women kind of monitor their, their, um, their friendships a lot because the way women tend to compete with other unrelated women is, is, Covert competition, so you know, talking behind each other's back, right? Social ostracism, and women have to be really careful that other women aren't doing this to them, you know. So they have to be very socially aware, and that's that's where women's emotional intelligence comes from. That's where their empathy comes from, um, the need to understand other people's points of view. Who are your friends and who are your enemies? Right. People. Women tend not to think of it like that. You know, we all like to think we're very nice and we're very cooperative. Um, But actually, if you look under the surface, there is definitely competition going on there. It's just very subtle. Right. Sometimes it bubbles up to the surface, but that's usually when things are getting out of control completely. Um, So so anyway, women have this this kind of greater agreeableness, um, which means greater empathy. So that means that they're... They tend to be nice a lot of the time. They're right. they're, they're they're cooperative in that sense, um, and they're good at understanding other people's points of view. Um, they're good at picking up on other people's emotions, and that's a really positive thing for work. You know, in a lot of jobs where people skills are paramount, then women do really really well. Um, but on the other hand, it also makes them highly sensitive and right. highly criticism. So. Um, especially when the criticism comes from another woman. So women tend not to respond that well to women bosses. There are exceptions, of course, but on the whole, I mean, research suggests that women like don't like women bosses so much as, as men bosses, whereas guys aren't too fussed about the gender of their boss. Right, that's really interesting. That's not what we necessarily hear uh, about men. We, we, we hear that men, oh, they, they might not like having a... Um, of being subordinate to a female but actually I think that probably most men are used to it from being kids actually <laughs> yeah that's true yeah yeah um so it's it's really important to understand all these dynamics that are going on because we tend not to like to talk about competition among women you know it's, it's, it's like you know women are supposed to be nice <laughs> right and and they are a lot of the time yeah but um, but there is, but obviously women have to compete with one another. You know, if you think about it biologically over evolutionary time, the, the women that have managed to get the best mates, the women yeah. who have managed to get the resources they need for their children to survive are the ones whose genes have made it into our generations. Right. And so, so therefore you'd expect women to have mechanisms for competing with each other. Um, but it's done in such a way that it's hard to kind of pick up on. Um, right. You know, by other people you don't want to come across as bitchy and competitive <laughs> yes of course not and yeah of course women have to to compete for mates just as, as men do but just not in the same way so I, I think that's why a lot of the time we see that say the dominance of male sporting events or in, in this industry or the the other was mostly traditionally because men had to compete for a mate and one of the ways they might do that is by showing that they excel at something yeah that's that's true, and and women excelling at sport, you know, people might admire them, but it doesn't make them more sexually attractive. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm sure it does to some people, but just not typically. Yeah, yeah. yeah on average, it, it doesn't. It doesn't in the same way. You know, if you think of Usain Bolt, <laughs> you know, um, I think he had plenty of of women at his feet, but um, elite female athletes, they probably don't have much advantage over, um, you know, people organizing the events you know it, it depends on on their their own attractiveness in other ways um i mean to, as you say to some people it would make a difference but um to men on average it's not not a big deal um so, so women don't make themselves more sexually attractive by attaining status 
um, they can benefit in other ways. They can they can get hold of more resources, which is also important for their reproductive success. But in terms of attracting a mate, um, you know, the whole thing seems to be about being nice. And this leads to women having a horrible conflict in the workplace between their, their kind of professional identities and their gender identity. And women do get penalised a lot for, you know, if they try to be assertive in negotiations in the same way that men are, um, some of them face a backlash because, you know, we, we're kind of, we've, we're used right. to the idea that women are more agreeable. I mean, that's part right. of biological, but also it's been amplified hugely by, by you know, society and, and by, um, the, you know, the way things are normally right. in work. So we, we kind of come to expect that. Um, and so if, if a woman kind of violates this feminine stereotype by being assertive and aggressive in negotiations, then, you know, people aren't going to like it very much. It's going to cause dissonance. Um, but there are some women that seem to be able to pull it off. You know, if you think of, um, you know, Christine Lagarde, you know, head of IMF, um, she's very feminine, but she also manages to be incredibly efficient and she's a good leader. Um, and the women that do tend to do well with this kind of stuff are women who don't kind of ha feel this conflict between, between their, their gender identity and, and their um, professional identity. They, they seem to be women that can somehow combine you know, they use their femininity in, in their assertiveness. They, they kind of build up social capital by being nice outside the context of these negotiations, perhaps. And then kind of they've got this reserve of goodwill, if you like. Um, right. People. And, and um, you know, as long as they're persistent and they keep a smile on their face. <laughs> right. But, you know, it, it's annoying that women have to behave in a different way from from men to, to achieve the same result but you know that seems to be the way the things work and uh, yeah yeah i hear you yeah it seems like you know you need to use what you've got uh, that seems very familiar to me from being in social situations where you see people can perform the same action but if you're not cool with it then you look like a weirdo but if you are cool with it then you're just someone who's cool and says and does what they want it's like your own inner frame your your state of confidence with yourself if you think it's okay to do it then often people around you will think it's okay to do it and i, I that that's at least what i was reminded of when you were um, speaking of that specific anecdote, I can't speak for all women, but what you say suggests to me that women don't just need to be assertive, but they also need to be okay and rooted in themselves and think, you know, this is, I'm, it's okay for me to be like this. I don't necessarily have to be agreeable in this particular situation. And um, if I believe it, then people around me will believe it. But if I sort of insecure and think, Oh, I'm going. I should really be be agreeable, but I'm trying to be assertive. People are going to pick up on that vulnerability and start judging me for it. Yeah, yeah. But I think we also need to look at the sort of prevailing culture as well. Um, you know, it's not just the case that you know women have to, you know, individually behave in this way and and sort of try and fit into a man's world. You know, that we we can change the culture so that it becomes um more egalitarian less sexist with with aspirational female role models so that um you know women have something to aim for and 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 also you know it, it becomes a a normal thing for for women to be at the top of the pile a normal thing for women to be assertive and and bosses and and stuff um and, and role models are really important. I mean, role models in the home are so important right from the start. You know, if, if you if you grow up, um, you know, and your mother is, is working in a high powered job and your dad helps. Well, not helps, but actually takes responsibility for, you know, his share of the domestic chores. Then you're going to grow up and, and, you know, research shows that this is true. You're going to grow up thinking that it's perfectly fine for, for women to expect to, to get into high-powered careers. And, and daughters in that situation do end up doing that. And sons in that situation do end up being a bit more caring um, and, you know, not afraid to sort of take on domestic stuff if they have, you know, the appropriate role models. So that makes all the difference. And, you know, as, as time goes on, I think we're, you know, we'll move in that direction more and more. And, um, and you know, men will be respected for taking a on domestic roles um, so that, 
you know, they can be kind of regarded as attractive in that way. You know, once you have respect, I think, you know, sex, if you like. It's not a um, foreign stereotype for a woman to see a man taking care of some children that aren't her own and suddenly feel a rush of attraction towards him for seeing that. So it's not a foreign idea that yeah. a man being domestic can be attractive. And I think, no question, uh, the world's unrecognisable in this respect from, say, before prior to the 60s and 50s. So yeah. uh, achievements have been made and perhaps our integration of of the changes is not fully complete in terms of it, it's not really normalized. I mean, obviously we, we do have biological drives, but if there's one thing we can say about human nature, it's one of our greatest nature, natural traits is our ability to adapt to our environment. And that's why we're on all the continents and why our cultures are so different from each other because a fetus doesn't know if it's going to be born here in Saudi Arabia or China. So we do have the ability to adapt and we're not fully beholden to our, our genetic programs. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's probably the, the single most important, you know, standout thing about humans is, is our flexibility. And absolutely, you know, we, we have kind of... Um, motivations that, that are genetic in origin but how, how we express those really depends on, on you know our development our biological development but um but also the environment that we grow into um so we, we are incredibly flexible and, and all these things interact to to make us the, the person we are and it seems to me that when the resources were scarce and things like that having more rigid gender roles maybe were necessary for the survival of the species because basically because women were scarce so they couldn't be risked in war or, or doing dangerous jobs and things like that because they're hard to it takes a long time for a for a woman to bring a baby to term and then and then take care of it whereas um you know a man can impregnate a lot of women so so to have them out of the care of wherever the settlement was was more appropriate for the survival of the species but now that we are wealthy and there's not so much scarcity we can really look at things like how what kind of what we would like our society to look like how we would like men and women to interact and also men and men and women and women to interact yeah um i mean there's there's a huge amount of variability even in you know pre-industrial societies um you know that it's, it's not necessarily the case that you get this division of labor you know quite often men will be hugely involved in looking after the kids even you know as you see in the hunter-gatherer societies as well and um, it really depends on the circumstances and it also depends on the individual you know both both genders have different strategies open to them you know if you're a guy um you could be the kind of guy that goes off with as many women as possible and impregnates as many women as possible. And, and in some cases, that would be a successful strategy from an evolutionary standpoint. Um, you know, you could potentially have lots of babies. But the problem with that is those babies might not survive if they need you to help look after them. So if you're in a situation where there's no one else to look after them apart from the mum, the mum definitely needs help. Um, and if you're not there to do that, then your babies might die. So in a lot of cases, it's much better for a guy to stick with, with one woman and their children together and have an input into the, those those kids. So even just looking at it from the man's point of view, it might be more beneficial to do it that way, depending on the circumstances and depending on your own qualities. Um, but research certainly shows that even in Britain today, kids do much, much better in terms of their social mobility and their health and all the rest of it um, if their father has an input or if, yes. you know, it doesn't have a male partner, it could be a female partner as well. But, as, you know, as long as there's somebody there that's there helping um, the mother raise you, then you're going to stand a much better chance of success in various um, realms. So um, so there are different strategies and there, there are different strategies for women as well. Um, you know, women might stick with one guy or might have you know several partners over a lifetime and, and have you know babies with, with different ones um and the the kind of costs and benefits of, of those different strategies depends 
you know, on the circumstances you're in, um, your own kind of life history and, and your own qualities in terms of things like attractiveness and personality and stuff. So we are really kind of variable, we humans. <laughs> you know, we're, we're a mixed up lot. But, but yeah, certainly nowadays when, certainly in Western society where we have kind of relatively comfortable lives, we have a lot more choices open to us. Um, but yeah i mean some people choose the kind of more traditional route and other people choose choose a more sort of modern way of doing things or unconventional way of of having the relationships but the main thing is to you know for your partner in the in this situation is you just need to find somebody with a compatible strategy to your own basically right you know for it to work yeah, and I think, you know, for, for all its flaws, the, the family unit, um, I know a, a lot of people will say, well, people end up treating their family worse than they treat anyone else you, you, uh, at times that are worse, but it seems to be advantageous and have, well, I mean, it's stood the test of time for quite a long time. I th- definitely think there's big disadvantages to for for children not to have more than one um adult influence mature adult influence but definitely growing up for me i didn't see a great deal of really good role models when you were speaking about role modeling as a as a man either and i think that it's well part of really what i want to do with this podcast is put out good information to help people live great lives there is a stereotype that women are more clingy than men are and uh, men can be cool and detached. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know you've done some some work or some writing in that area. Sure, yeah. I think this comes down to attachment styles. Um, what attachment styles are is, you know, as we grow up, the relationships we have, first of all, with our caregivers when we're very small, but right through life, you know, um, our romantic relationships as well, it kind of um, it shows us basically how much we can trust relationships, you know, depending on how we're treated by others, whether they're there for us and are supportive or whether they're kind of a bit, um, you know, sort of unpredictable. Um, so around 50 percent of people have secure attachment styles, which is a good thing. It means right. that you're right. comfortable with intimacy you're not too obsessed with, you know, kind of hanging on to your partner or pushing them away or anything like that. You know, you're, you're quite comfortable to to have an intimate relationship. Um, and that generally means that you've probably grown up in a fairly sort of secure situation where, you know, your, your parents or your caregivers have been there for you. They've been responsive um, and you haven't had you know, huge disasters in terms of um, people letting you down. Um, but there are other subsets of the population that aren't quite so lucky and um, I'm talking about people that end up with insecure attachment styles. Now this can go either of two ways. You can either become anxiously attached and that basically means that you constantly worry about your your attachment figure. So if we're talking about romantic relationships, your, your, your romantic partner, um, you might be constantly worried that they're going to leave you. You want to test them all the time. So you, you play games, you do that thing with, with texts where you wait a while before you text back and see how many times they text you and all that kind of stuff. Count the number of X's. Yes, yes. And become over analytical and oversensitive about everything. You know, they, they might come home from work and be grumpy. And it could be just because, you know, they've had a bad day, they're tired. But you might interpret it to mean that they're fed up with you and they're going to leave you, you know, because they're not being nice to you or something. Right. Um, so that's that's an anxious attachment style. Or it can go the other way and you can become avoidant. So you can have a, an avoidant attachment style. And that basically means that you see intimacy as too risky. Mm. So although you might want to have an intimate relationship, you want to have a, a good relationship, you f- keep finding ways of pushing the other person away. Um, you want to keep them at arm's length. And if they try and get too close you know, you, you push them away again. Um, and so so what's been found is that there's a slight difference in, in um, genders in terms of whether they go for the anxious attachment style or whether they tend towards avoidance. And as you might have guessed, um, women have a slightly more tendency to become anxiously attached if right. they're attached and men avoidant. And 
so so we, that that's where the stereotype of clingy women and commitment for men come from. But um, unfortunately, quite often these people end up together, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. Wow. <laughs> so anxiously attached women quite often end up with avoidantly attached men, and it's a horrible situation because they they, they kind of. Um, making each other worse in terms of the, their their insecurities, right. because the the avoidant man will constantly think that this woman is trying to get too close to him all the time, so he's pushing her away, and so when he pushes her away, she gets all upset because she thinks he doesn't love her anymore, so she's getting more clingy and right, trying to draw the um the strokes that she wants out of him. And and yet when she does that, that has the complete effect on him because he's afraid of of being owned. So so he withdraws more, and that creates a sort of cycle. And why do you suppose people do that? Is that because that um, dynamic reminds them of their attachment with one of their parents or something like that? Why why is it that we? I'm not sure. There could be some kind of you know, trying to, to fix the problem that was before. But I think it might be more to do with the fact that there's more of them in the kind of dating pool, if you like, because the secure oh. people have all kind of got together and right. they're relationships, long-term relationships and they're not breaking up so much. And if you do break up, they don't kind of jump straight in there again, whereas insecurely attached people do tend to. Right. And oh. so, so disproportionately represented in, in the dating pool, especially as you kind of get older, unfortunately. So you have to be even more aware. And and the, the advice is that if you are insecurely attached, the best way of improving um, your security in relationships is to get together with a securely attached person. Right. Simply because they understand what's needed in a relationship. A secure person will reassure you before you have a chance to get insecure. Um, so, you know, if you have a situation, for example, where, um, you know, your partner's going off to the airport to go abroad for something, um, you're anxiously attached. Um, and so you're worried about them going away, what they're going to get up to. Um, but if they're a secure partner, they'll text you from the airport, they'll say they're getting on the plane, they'll text you from the other end, say everything's fine. So you don't have a chance for your kind of insecurities to get activated and everything's fine whereas if you were with an avoidant person they'd get to the airport they wouldn't be texting you so you text them they're going oh god she's texting me again just leave me alone just let me get on with it yeah i'm away for a week that means i'm away that means don't talk to me right i'll see you when i get back <laughs> the, the text or the phone call and then you know that makes the anxious person even more anxious and by the time they actually do speak to one another there's a big huge argument because you know they're really upset with each other <laughs> so so um right. you you have to find ways of, of behaving in a more secure way but also finding a secure partner in the first place is is quite a good piece of advice you know don't go for the um you know up and down roller coaster of, of going for somebody that's avoidantly attached because you know they'll be sort of coming towards you and, and kind of giving you you know making you feel that that you're the one and they, they love you and everything. And then when you sort of start getting into that, they'll, they'll sense that you're getting too close to them and then start pushing you away again. Right. And it's when it's, when it's going good, it's going too good. And that's when they want to push you away. Yeah. It's too, it can't be, it can't be this good. Yeah. Anxiously attached people have a habit of thinking of that as excitement. That's, you know, that's true love. You know, this, this, this is really it because it, it feels so good when they're on a high, right. but they come crashing down again. And it's really not what they need in the long term because, um, you know, it's, it's not going to make them happy. It's a wonder that's not anxiously attached people meeting up with other anxiously attached people and avoidantly uh, attached people meeting with avoidantly attached people. Well, avoidant people... Are, um, get together then they would just be apart immediately because neither of them would, <laughs> would right. be hanging on enough to um so they would kind of repel like mag you know magnets um you know that are, are have the same charge or something i suppose um anxiously anxiously attach people together um i suppose it would work but um yeah they might just be neurotic together <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I've seen that kind of relationship more more the one where, you know, you're not allowed to talk to other men, you're not allowed to talk to other women, and this is just our kind of, um, our, our little bubble. But um, I have seen quite a lot growing up, and this might be the, the 
the kind of uh, potter's wheel that we were molded in in my generation but a lot of us switched the other way where it was the the guys young guys i just want a girlfriend i just want a girlfriend but as soon as uh anyone actually fancied them they'd get super clingy and um, it would really drive the girl, <laughs> drive the girl away until they, and, until maybe it happened enough times that someone would maybe smack themselves in the head a little bit and realise that you can be, you know, if if you're trying to pull someone towards you, the natural thing that they do is, you know, tug tug their arm away, and you you need to give a relationship space to grow the same way as you you don't water your house plants two or three times a day, you you water it and then you go away and then when it needs watered again. You water it. Um, have you have you heard much of that, or have you got any comment on that? Well, yeah. I mean, some people advocate a sort of you know playing hard to get approach, which you can see why it might work because you know if you're playing hard to get, you know, not not watering the plants if you like, um, then what you're saying is you know I don't need you that much. You know, I've got lots of other options, so I'm you know I'm not going to pay that much attention to you, um, and that kind of raises your value in the right. eyes. Of- you know it makes you seem as if you have a higher mate value because you don't need them you know you're not desperate um but that kind of approach could backfire um because if you play too hard to get what kind of person are you going to attract right you're going to attract somebody that that is rubbing their hands with glee with somebody that's not being too and that is an avoidantly attached person right so it's not necessarily a good thing at some point you're going to have to reveal the fact that you do want a, a sort of committed relationship yes. when you do that it's going to go pear-shaped if you're with somebody that you know kind of sort of bought the goods on the basis that you know you weren't that yeah. bothered you know not necessarily a good thing to, to do yeah yeah it's going to damage your ability to be authentic later on because if you want someone who's going to uh, be able to hold you and um I don't mean that literally, although that's important as well, but when you speak, when you reveal yourself, you don't want someone who uh, is after someone who's always a mystery and always just out of sight, because then when you do turn around and want to share yourself with the other person, they're like, oh, do you know what I mean? I like the, yeah. I like not knowing you. I liked being able to project what I wanted onto you. So I don't think playing hard to get is a good strategy, but I do think what is a great strategy is to have lots of your own interests and your own things going in your life, yeah. projects and things like that, especially if you're a man, because I don't think that women like uh, men without purpose, but also if you're, especially if you're a woman today as well, because you've got your own life and that's as important to your hap. that's going to be as important to your happiness as your relationship. Yeah, no, and it goes back to that thing, you know, I was talking about earlier, you know, if you have your own interests and you have your, your things that you can be confident in and excel in that's not anything to do with your partner, then when your partner sees you in that, that context, you know, you've got something to offer, you've got something different there that, you know, they're not part of and and that makes you seem more exciting, I would guess. Um, so I think, yeah, for the long-term relationship satisfaction, I think, those kind of things are vitally important to have your own interests that, um, you know, that make you, you, you know, some of your identity. So, um, yeah, I think if, if we want to have good relationships, that's what we need to do. Thank you so much. Mary, thank you so much for coming on the Be Yourself and Love It podcast. Please tell everyone where they can find your work and hear all about your workshops and find out how they might be able to attend one of those. Absolutely. Well, you can find me at sexyscience.co. It's just .co, nothing else. Um, so sexyscience.co. And um, I have a blog there. Um, you find out about my workshops. So at the moment, I'm sort of putting together workshops for women. Um, and there's, there's at the moment, there's four different types of workshops. Um, they're basically a couple. The first couple of them are to do with women and romantic relationships and how to find good you know, a good partner, um, and looking at sort of all the biological and psychological aspects of it and, you know, what we can glean from that. Um, And then I've got another workshop that's more to do with um, health and well-being and sort of things at work um, and, you know, looking at all those, your relationships and your health from an evolutionary perspective. Um, And then the last one is called uh, the science of success. And so that's more concentrating on work relationships and 
um, how as women we can become better at negotiating, sort of dealing with that, you know, gender professional identity conflict thing um, and all sorts of aspects to do with working relationships that can help us feel happier and more productive at work. So please have a look at those um, and you can join my mailing list on there. Um, you can email me at uh, mari at sexyscience.co and I hope to hear from some of you. <laughs> and uh, as well as that, you know, I'm, I'm, I do plenty of presentations for workplaces, for after dinner, um, for, for any events where people want to hear about interesting human behaviour. So um, you can always get in touch with me about that as well. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you again. So lots of interesting stuff on Mary's website, sexyscience.co. If you would like to increase your own mate value or maybe just attain to more of your potential in this life, I strongly recommend you go to my website, beyourselfandloveit.com and check out my course under the course tab. Don't forget to share this if you enjoyed it and subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud to tune in next week. Until then, be yourself. Well, don't just be yourself. Be yourself and love it.